we do have a long way to go to get all of the people registered of voting aid. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. We will turn out to vote this cycle because we all understand what's at stake. Let's head to Arizona where Republicans are recounting two million ballots by hand. Welcome to Dead Men Don't Vote, the podcast where election, election experts help you, the American voter, understand how elections work and how you can help restore confidence in American democracy. At the Trust the Vote Project, we've spent over 15 years talking with and learning from election administrators and government officials about how votes are cast, counted, and reported so that we can help ensure elections are run in a verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent manner. I'm Gregory Miller, software industry veteran, non-practicing IP lawyer, and tireless advocate for verifiable elections. I'm joined today by Cameron Quinn, Jenya Coulter, and John Sevis. I'll be your host for today's episode, which will be the first half of our interview with Dana DeBovar, who recently retired as the county clerk of Travis County, Texas, after nearly four decades of service. I'm delighted and honored that Dana chose to sit down with Dead Men Don't Vote as her first interview post-retirement. Greg, I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this interview. As you know, I've known Dana for a number of years, and she really is one of the election thought leaders nationally um, and has really been an innovator, both uh, sort of in terms of state laws as well as, and more importantly, uh, well known for her technology innovation. Um, And I just I think this is going to be a lot of fun to listen to. Jenya, I have to say, uh, you know, you know what it's like to be in the trenches on the front lines of democracy. And and certainly Dana talks a lot about that. What do you think? I'm certainly a beneficiary of many of Dana's innovations, particularly in the um, aspects of running vote centers. And after meeting Dana in 2018 in Miami at an EAC conference, Dana is the quintessential election professional, and she's also the ultimate Southern feminist icon. She'll smile and say, bless your heart, as polite as you please, and then she will turn around and she will go do her own thing, and she will change the election world forever without caring too much about what anybody thinks of her. So Karen, tell us, you know, one of the things that just strikes me about Dana is that, uh, you know, the old the old joke is that, that she operates uh, in a blue dot in the middle of a red sea, being it's Texas and all just trying to imagine all the things that she's had to balance because uh, she strikes me as someone who really has that ability to stay in that nonpartisan position to benefit everyone. And and you certainly have interacted with her over the years and you yourself have been in that same situation. How do you think that really ultimately impacts your ability to sustain, what was that, 36, 37 years? Um, having myself been the red dot in the middle of a blue sea, her polar opposite in that regard kudos to her for lasting that long. But I think a big reason she was able to is that while elections has always had some challenges, it really didn't get challenging to the point it was tending to raise people's blood pressure uh, and people were feeling personally attacked really until after the Florida elections in 2000. And it escalated over the last five to 10 years with the advent of social media and the fact that people just felt so much freer to attack and bully in a way that we really never saw publicly before. I have to say, I'm incredibly impressed that she lasted that long. But I think a piece of that is that for the first 20 years or so, it was challenging, but perhaps not as challenging as it's been the last 20 years. 
Well, I think it's going to be a great opportunity for everyone to hear what Dana has to say. And so let's jump in. Dana Devovar, I am so appreciative that you're sitting down with me today. I mean, this is great. What what an amazing run this has been for you. When when we first met, when you were shopping for election night reporting services technology, and at that point, you were probably, I guess, two thirds into your career. This is just a great opportunity to sit down. And I want to start with this consensus amongst many that we've been asking over the past few weeks is that you are truly one of the great ones. Sincerely, I mean, dedicated like no American patriot. So I have to ask, what's it like to no longer be eating, drinking, and living elections 25 by 8? Yeah, I like that, 25 by 8. Well, what's it like to conquer an addiction? What's it like to get off adrenaline? It has been an interesting road to try to still stay in the elections game because I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. Uh, I don't have the luxury of waiting around to take an extra year off for a sabbatical and then come back to it. I think we all need everybody helping as much as we can right now. So I just have tried to learn how to get up in the morning and do a little bit of a yoga practice and breathe. And I got sucked back into a little controversy. Just I was just a few weeks after I left and it was amazing how fast I got sucked back in and the, you know, the fear and the anger and the energy level was ratcheted right back up to a hundred percent. And it took me days and days uh, to unplug from that. So I don't think this process that I'm in, which has now been three months, it's not over. I'm still learning how to have a life where it's not really 25 eight because that's, that's what elections was. And it right. went, even though most voters think we just vote once a year. As you're decompressing and there's, you said so much that I want to, we're going to come back to. Looking back over the years, and I know this is a considerable ask based on the amount of time you've been in this, is there something that stands out to you as like the greatest challenge that you had to figure out how to overcome? Gregory, the answer to that has to be star vote. So many of my colleagues and I were being personally and professionally attacked for crazy stories and crazy theories that had no basis in reality But people were hearing that on the Internet and they took it as faith, unquestioning. And so we were all being pounded on with this constant attack on, you know, just how slow and stupid were we? How come we couldn't get election results out on time? How come we needed, you know, electronic voting to support larger jurisdictions? Nobody had ever asked us any of those questions. They just suddenly, based on the Internet information, started attacking And the answer to that was to give voters what they want. If they think they want a paper trail, then give them a paper trail. It's fine. We will Mm -hmm. figure out how to, how to make them happy because they're the measure of whether our democracy has, holds any confidence. So it's like give voters what they want. But the problem is voters weren't getting a fair uh, shake in what they were being told. So they didn't know what they wanted. And all of the technology and all of the political wherewithal completely lagged behind what voters were demanding. For that matter, what activists were demanding. At the Mm -hmm. time when I was being pilloried for not having some sort of a paper trail system or some sort of an auditable system because we had electronic voting, there was no such system to purchase. There wasn't any place where I could go and buy. That's what started the whole thing about Starvote is we were all being so maligned for not Mm -hmm. having the kind of equipment that voters wanted, and yet it didn't exist. 
It wasn't right. ready for, you know, the states hadn't voted on it. It wasn't cleared. None mm-hmm. of that had happened yet. So we couldn't use any of the equipment that was even more technologically savvy and, and advanced than what we had before. And yet so, here we were moving forward. So this is not the first time that, 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 that we've heard this, but it sounds to me like the greatest challenge is public relations. Everything from crisis management to managing the transparency issues and all of that. So what happens there is the perceptions, the misperceptions and misunderstanding. I want you to climb up on your podium with the internet-wide reach of our podcast and explain to America why our civic duty and civil right to cast a ballot is so sacrosanct and what we as a nation, a republic, if we can keep it, right, must do in order to preserve this democratic process and ensure we all can trust the vote. So what is it that, that we have to do? We are the singular example of this kind of democracy in the world, and we've had uh, you know, more than 260 years to practice it, and it does seem a shame that something that was so built to protect life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness of those who are members of this union would be so torn apart so quickly by a silly lie on a social media. It just doesn't seem reasonable that that would be the case. So I guess mm. what I'm looking forward to is the chance to counter, and there are a lot of people working on this right now, counter every single mis- piece of misinformation quickly and, and succinctly, get it out to as many people as possible. It won't work okay. 100%, but it's got to be the place where we start. And then mm. I would like to you know, personally see if I can help continue this work about finding us the appropriate technology and the appropriate sizing for the many different kinds of jurisdictions we have in the United States. We've got all kinds of folks, 10,000 offices conducting elections, and each one of them yeah. really is very different. And so, you know, that actually makes me think about something else that we've talked about over the years, with the Verified Voting Foundation and, and the Bipartisan mm-hmm. Policy Center, Brendan, everyone. This notion of professionalizing election administration, I mean, it already is professional for many, but there is this entire workforce that amounts to day laborers, volunteers, if you will. When you take a look at that entire ecosystem, what's your feeling about what kind of program might be put in place to give elections workers the certificate, the credentials, the recognition of their professionalism. You fold in things like cybersecurity training, other stuff to give them um, the, a mantle on which they can say, look, I am an election professional. And oh, by the way, I should be compensated properly for that. Mm-hmm. What's your take on on trying to do things to make that profession uh, of a higher certified recognized stature that might begin to help restore some respect? Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? We Before uh, Bush v. Gore, before 2000, none of those plans, none of those opportunities for elections administrators was in place. So since then, we have seen develop through Auburn University and the Election Center and some other places, mm-hmm. a right. new emphasis on training of learning the history of understanding budgeting and procurement, of understanding the, the need for statistics and how you audit all of those features that are common when you have an upper level degree, uh, they certainly taught me those things when I was at the LBJ school. But there's no ele- there was at the time no election school you could attend if you already had right. the job and go learn until the election school and Auburn University started trying to help with it. So I, I think we're going to continue to have the need to have these people, you know, touched and talked to and trained continuously. 
once a year probably isn't going to be enough. And so for the smaller offices that don't have budgets and don't have staff to do that training, they're going to have to figure out a way to maintain contact with their election judges and workers. One of the things that we did in Travis County many, many years ago is we established a program called Guardians of Democracy. And it was set at levels. And so after you had been conducting different kinds of elections, you got extra points for doing a primary because it was so complicated. You had a, a lot of opportunity for people to do really good work, but not a lot of opportunity for them to be recognized. So we did Guardians of Democracy so that they could be thanked for all their years of service. They could be thanked for all the different kinds of elections they had run, for all the new security programming that they had learned with e-poll bo- po- whole poll books and with electronic inventories, all those things. Once we started treating them as if they were really the key personnel for elections, I I think you started seeing everybody, and especially America, start paying better attention to their elections administrators. Mm. People now thank election workers for their service, and I I think that's the right direction to go in. Sure. That that strikes me uh, as a state-by-state, county-by-county program. I mean, that program sounds amazing. There should be guardians of democracy everywhere. But just to tease that out a little bit further, I mean, you're familiar with the CISSP designation for security professionals, right? So they're certified information security professionals out there, and they take exams, and they pass those exams, et cetera, et cetera. I was asked recently, why isn't there a, a certification program? And perhaps there is, but should there be a certification program that people could say, you know, look, I am a certified elections professional or I'm a certified elections auditor so that we can create kind of a more bright line distinction? And that might help, in my mind, to begin to recognize those who, frankly, know what they're talking about. But what are your thoughts on that? Is this notion of a certified election professional and some sort of set of standards and education course to do that? There is one now. And it has been extensively developed over the last few years. It's called CERA, C-E-R-A, Certification for, let's see, Election and Registration Management, C-E-R-A-C, Elections Registration Administrators. Right, right. Yeah, okay. so Sarah has gone a long way in making sure that people understand all of that history and all of this, the security aspects of conducting an election that are so new, quite frankly, to the field, at least within the last 15 years, and that we now study those things and we know those things. So anybody who has a Sarah certification, I put it on my business card so that people who don't know what it is will ask. That's perfect. And I think that needs to be publicized more if that program exists. If you were charged with figuring out how to attract new people to the profession of elections. What what are some of the things you think need to happen to make the job more attractive and sustainable? Right. I have a list of things that I think we could do. And let me start off by saying that there's a big difference between the level of authority that you have as a county clerk conducting elections versus the level of authority that an appointed elections administrator has. The elections administrators are not a powerful position at all. And if you're looking for somebody to stand up against party abuse or to stand up for the rights of voters, it may not be an elections administrators because they can be fired at the drop of a hat. So anybody on their five-person board doesn't like something they say, they're out. And I really think that that's got to change. I think we should have less political involvement in the job of EA and the conduct of elections and have the parties focus entirely on recruiting people to do the job. I think that's an important element where we bring the parties in. And after that, they need to get out of the hair of the professional who's conducting the election. They should have virtually nothing to do with conduct. 
And I realize exactly. that's a, a yeah. provocative statement for all of my political friends. Well, Dana, let me pause you right there because that that actually that just that pivots to another question I had sort of in the back of my mind. You know, at the OSA Institute, we've, we've been doing a lot of work, more and more work overseas and abroad for all democracies that have technology issues. And one of the things that strikes me is that in other countries and other democracies, we have this notion of an EMB, an election management board or body. And they're, they're referred to as EMBs in the international parlance. Canada strikes me as the most immediate example. And what I really was struck by that is that the EMB uh, is funded by all parties and the government, and they stand as an independent organization who's charged with just administering elections. There's no partisanship involved. You don't have an elected position in that organization. And in fact, what really is kind of interesting is that Compared to the United States and Canada, for example, the EMB is charged with with aggressive voter registration and voter turnout drives. Tell me about one or two of the most important things that you think people need to understand about the voting process that in your experience, based on all that pillaring, that they don't most often they don't realize. I think the fundamental uh, gap in voters' understanding about how elections are conducted is that they have no idea about the basic chain of custody that happens with every single step in elections. They don't know that when you perform a test to say, yes, all of my candidates line up with all the precincts they're supposed to be in, and that test gets locked down, they don't know about that test or how incredibly important it is to make sure that what you deliver to voters on election day for ballots is correct. The closest I think you can get to people understanding chain of custody is the rules about evidence. When they think about, uh, you know, the crime shows on TV, they can get the idea that, okay, well, whoever held the evidence first is going to have to sign it over to the next person and they're going to have to sign it over and then it's going to have to be locked up. Well, that evidence example is the perfect definition of what I think voters really need to understand about elections. There are so many checks and balances at every step along the way and everything is tracked. And the irony of that, that all of those precautions are taken and all those steps are so well documented, is that the truth is elections administrators have no control over most of the events surrounding an election. It's mostly controlled Mm. by the candidates and the campaigns. We do not control turnout. We don't even control when voters decide to go vote. We just have to be able to react and respond as quickly as possible because in the end, the thing that matters most about our jobs is are we able to produce timely results on election night? So much confidence and faith is still placed in that last action on election night. Right, right. And and it's interesting because that in of itself, that whole chain of custody, stewardship, providence of the ballots, et cetera, is giving rise to so much legislation going on right now with the perception of 2020 hacked, tampered, rigged. And now we have laws. Here's one for you. You may have seen where now it is uh, going to be treated as a crime if a ballot box is left unattended. I forget the jurisdiction where this is in. I read about this recently and my thinking was, gosh, you suddenly need a comfort break and you have to part with the ballot box for a few minutes. And technically now that's a crime. Yeah. Felony, I think. They're really going after these heavy crimes, heavy punishment. So with that in mind, looking back now, what would you tell others is probably the most difficult aspect. I thought it was public relations. Now I'm thinking maybe it's something else. What is the the most difficult aspect of administering election? 
And it's the one thing that I think we're not going to ever be clear of. And that is that elections are all about managing people. You've got to manage the voters that are coming in. You've got to manage the election judges for their training and all the workers, all the staff in the back room. All of that is all about managing people, making sure they have the, the skills that they need, the protections that they need to not make a mistake. And then, you know, everything else so that we can all depend on them to deliver an election to us on Election Day. And it's that quality of making sure everybody knows what their role is and understands when they get into trouble or when they have a question, who do they call and that they act right away when they've got a problem. All of those aspects, no matter which group you're managing, even unruly, misbehaving poll watchers are still a problem of managing people. Because typically when people behave badly and act out, it's for a reason. It's because they're frightened, they're scared, they've been told something that's probably wrong. And you've got to try to find a way to connect with them before they'll ever turn down the heat enough to listen to what you're saying. So I really think it's all about people management. And with that in mind, I think all of the new training programs that I have offered to help my colleagues with all now have a focus on de-escalation. We have to teach our people not only how to connect with a voter, a poll watcher, a worker who's having a problem, they're upset, they don't know what's going on. How do you get them, you know, back feeling comfortable again and understanding what the procedures are without connecting with them? And there's sometimes when these folks are just so badly behaved, it's really not possible to establish a personal connection. And so one of the other things we're trying to teach people, teach work, especially election workers about de-escalation is don't presume that you're the one who has to do it. Because there may very well be likely somebody else in the polling place who's going to do a better job than you of dealing with somebody who's just completely offending. I've mentioned to some other folks, I thought the EMB idea is good. And and I get a lot of pushback from both political sides of we want all the foxes guarding the hen house. But it sounds like you were just suggesting that independence of the election administration body could improve this a bit. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Yes, it, it, you are. You, you have summarized what I think. And I think there's lots of ways to create that kind of independence and protection from political retaliation that all of these elections administrators or so many of them yeah. are undergoing right now. I think we ought to have the ability to fire an elections administrator by a board it should have to be a supermajority vote. You can't just have two people come in and make a motion to fire and then the vote's three to two. No, no, that should not be the way it is, because that is political parties forcing their will on what should be the professional conduct of elections. Professional elections administrators are not here to assure to the parties that their guy is going to win. To the contrary, our job is to make sure that voters understand how to participate in the process and show up to vote. And that's the end of whether what they think we're doing is proper and sufficient. Yeah, you've probably by implication already answered this question, but so what's your take on imposing criminal liability for election workers? Oh, that's insulting. It's horrible. It's intended to be cruel and frightening, and it is successful. Yeah, I mean, we're hearing that folks are leaving the profession in droves, and that's just kind of crazy. What about if we turned that the other way and said every time a legislature wrote a law that had unintended consequences or that really messed up something in a, in a way that so very often happens coming out of legislative sessions, that those people, those legislators could be subjected to f- felony penalties? Does that sound like a good way to approach it? <laughs> so so then let's let's move to the topic because it's all about innovation. And as you said, you, you never gave up 
never surrendered the idea that we can make uh, voting easier, convenient, dare I say delightful, through appropriate uses of technology. I would commit an interview malpractice if I didn't say, let's talk StarVote. So for our audience, StarVote, in our professional opinion at the OSINS, it was one of the most significant proposed innovations since the introduction of computers to voting, which by contrast hasn't fared so well. You, Dana, were the visionary, the thought leader, the cheerleader of an enormous effort that went into StarVote. But in the end, StarVote never actually came to pass. So I'd love you to give us a brief overview of StarVote. First, the why, then the what and the how, and then we can talk about what ultimately came of it. What happened was, was that the computer scientists and the activists who had been berating me and pounding on me and telling me how awful I was to the general public, I called them up. I called up the lead guy uh, and said, you know, I don't know what you think you're accomplishing, but I would like to talk to you if you want to have these protections and these provisions in an electronic voting system, then stop wasting your time haranguing people who can't change it. And why don't you work with me and we will build a system that will make it all possible. And that Hmm. was what happened. And the story that I got back years later was the guy that I called was completely blown away. He couldn't believe that anybody had reached out and said, oh, yeah, you you think, you know, a better way to do it than let's build it. So so that's what happened was that I I got tired of being unfairly criticized and beat up on when, in fact, there was no solution to what they were saying. They were being inappropriate in trying to say, you know, you have to go back to hand tallying and huge, gigantic, massive, expensive inventories of paper ballots that are their own security risk. No, we need technology and here are the ways that we can try to reduce the risk that somebody's going to mess it up, make a mistake, or that there's going to be sort of any sort of infiltration. And all those are doables. And global companies have been doing this for years. They get paid big bucks to do this security training and protection for industry. Mm -hmm. So what is Starvote? Let me, let me start out by saying some of the basic things it is. Let's see, S-T-A-R, secure, transparent, transparent. Uh, automatic, and responsive in the sense that it was auditable. It was an open source voting system, so you didn't have to pay the exorbitant amount of money for private sector software. And then what if this design had embedded in it a way for anybody to do an audit? So we're looking at the the possibility of the future of a gold standard saying that any third party can walk up and with just a little bit of cooperation with the elections office can conduct their own independent separate audit of the election results. Now we're talking. Now we're talking about the League of Women Voters, any of the political parties, even candidates, whatever, can come in and do their own audit. And I really do think that for the future, we're going to have to consider not just doing an audit or what is included in the audit, which I think are very fair questions for us to spend some time thinking about, but also the idea that uh, it does matter who conducts the audit. And I would not have thought that several years ago. We would have thought that audits are just very normal. They have their own set of rules and you follow the rules. And so it doesn't really matter who conducts it. And now we've seen very differently. It matters very much. So in terms of an independent audit, conducted by somebody else, that could turn out to be a very good thing because then people who didn't believe the first audit have the opportunity for the second audit for them to participate in until we get past the point, maybe the next generation, maybe the next, where we have cleared our brains from all of the propaganda that's been installed in them. Right, right. That transparent ability to conduct an audit. 
It was all about transparency. It absolutely provided the kind of electronics that large jurisdictions need. And it was to get to that big goal of third-party verification. In a shameless plug here, Starvote shares DNA with ElectOS uh, and what we're building at the Trust the Vote Project. I mean, they're twin sons of a different mother, if you will. So I'm compelled to ask, can we talk about what ultimately came of it? Because yes. it didn't happen. Yes, after yes. All well, that. And, and this is another one of those uh, situations where Starvote still lives. Starvote goes on. It has not, its name has kind of dropped by the wayside, although I always really like that name. But what we now have is a, a group out of DARPA who's also working to build what's now called Election Guard. All of us have some of these similar ideas about how we can make technology work for us and make it produce the confidence that that we think we should expect from voters, but maybe they need something to help get them there to that level sure. of confidence. So sure. that's what Starbucks was all about. And it, it lives. It's going to be in a few years, you're going to see an open source system. I don't know exactly who might propose it, but I'm I'm completely... Can I give you a hint? Technology, not only what OSET's doing, but what some other technologies right. are doing too. And the opportunity for us to learn some lessons in Europe, which might be less toxic right now. Yes, indeed. And and we're finding that ourselves at the Institute. But I will tell you that, yeah, there are dozens of projects around the country now. I can actually share a little thing with you, which is, of course, our CTO has worked on the Election Guard implementation yeah. uh, with the company that was hired to help Microsoft get Election Guard to the finish line. Yes. Election Guard is an open source software development kit, though, is a piece of Starvote, right? I mean, it's an important piece. It was the end-to-end encryption process that allowed you to verify for yourself and, and keep the anonymity of the voter and keep the secrecy of the ballot and yet still allow a voter to their own satisfaction conclude that what had happened was what they expected. That was the idea. That was the challenge that was put to the group. Instead of just right. throwing rocks at elections administrators, why don't you come up with an answer? And I believe this group did. I think we're going to see it in the near future. So ultimately there, what happened was that what came of it was you made a, a, a monumental push for the funding to get that project uh, on the road, but ultimately the state thwarted you or other things thwarted the effort to, to actually bring that to, to fruition. Do I have that history right? Pretty much. Here's the only little nuance I would add to that is that I suddenly found mm. myself being in the position of having to sure. make those judgment calls about at what point... Is it not appropriate for county government to take on this risk of building? Right. When am I wrong to continue with this? And so the idea was I always had these moving targets of what's this going to cost? You know, the potential costs, what are the risks? What might we get caught up in? And and every day we worked on Starvote, it was always a look at that risk picture. And when it got to the point where the amount of money it was going to take to build it equaled or was close to what I could probably go buy off the street, even if it did not give us independent verification, was probably a better deal for voters and for their taxpayer money. Because at that yeah. point, we were getting to be a little too experimental. And I think we did a pretty good job of managing that start off. And we did launch it into something else. But right. ultimately, it was a, a matter of being a wise steward of county dollars. We could have spent our way into buying the system we needed, and it would have been too much money. Yeah, it's an interesting com- compare and contrast for another time with what happened over in LA County with the VSAP project. But the ultimately there, the disappointment there was is that what we had hoped would become truly open source was thwarted by the challenges of finding a commercial manufacturer to actually take 
all that design development work and productize it and still honor the public licensing. So we're hoping here at the OSA Institute that we believe that, you know, code causes change. And so if we get this code finished and we get it out there, that we're going to have a little bit of a, of a different model for seeing it the widespread adoption. The only thing I was going to add to that is there are so many out here of us, Gregory, that are so hoping OSEP's going to be successful uh, in this venture because we've pushed and pushed and pushed and we need all parties, all hands on deck helping with this. Well, thank you. We've got 16 years in with no signs here giving up. Let me ask you this. If you had to say, what do you think is the single greatest accomplishment in your decades of election administration that made the process easier for voters? What's that one thing you did? Well, I would say we fought back against this fear of technology and we kept bringing in every year some new aspect that would help voters find it easier to vote. For example, um, we got electronic poll books so that we would no longer have the problem of the risk of giving voters the wrong ballot, their own ballot right. style. Once right. you get that problem you know, locked down, then you're in so much better shape for the rest of the election. I think that all of the, I mean, we tried every single election. We worked so closely with the Texas Secretary of State to try to make sure that we had taken every advantage in law there was to make it easy and acceptable for voters to vote without them having to fear that they were going to have a mistake or without them having to deal with all sorts of obstacles to get to a place to vote. So we introduced Mm -hmm. countywide polling places so that they could be, you know, wherever they were in the county that was convenient for them. I I was going to ask if you folks had uh, vote centers in Travis County. I couldn't remember. Yeah, we do. I did them in 2011. Right. So for our listening audience that doesn't understand. So a vote center dramatically increases convenience and access to the ballot box by saying, look, you can go to a nearby location that is not necessarily your precinct and your school gym or your church or whatever, um, but closer to your place of employment and check in, if you will. And Dana's team will know which ballot you need because you're voting for people in your part of the county that there aren't applicable elsewhere. So that's the idea of a vote center. And it sounds like, yes, indeed, Travis County had those, which is I think that's a great innovation in of itself. And the more things that you can bring to voters to help them vote, like, you know, certainly all of the public relations and social media techniques, if you can get them to function properly, that tell people what's on their ballot, what can they expect so they're educated by the time they get there, where mm-hmm. to go vote and what are the hours? Are there any right. special considerations like sometimes Sunday, Sunday voting is closed? All of that outreach to voters is what we need to be spending our time and money on. Not fighting lawsuits, claiming that we're felons trying to steal an election. It's just ridiculous. And that final line from Dana has to be the perfect cliffhanger for when Dana's discussion for her persecution by Texas Attorney General Ken Mack Paxton in part two of my interview, which will drop soon. So let's get some reactions. Jenya, what do you think? I think that Dana had made some really good points. Um, one of the things as far as attracting new talents to elections, there is a bit of educational gatekeeping lately in which it didn't used to require an advanced degree in order to get a job as an election administrator. And in many jurisdictions now it is. I think if there was a program to extend the CERA um, to non-advanced degree holders, like with what they do at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, that would really make a huge difference in attracting newer people into the profession. And what's the CERA again? Uh, Certified Election Registration Administration. Ah, okay. Administrator. 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 Thank you, Cameron. 
Cameron, observations initially. What's your so first one? My, my immediate reaction listening to Dana was how similar we both were sort of immediately after leaving election administration. Her priorities were trying to get back to deal with her health, which uh, under that kind of stress doesn't really do very well. Hmm. Uh, but yet wanting to stay strategically involved in elections, uh, which is exactly sort of my immediate response after I left the Fairfax job. Yeah, sure. John, um, a lot of technology wrapped up in what she was trying to achieve there. What do you think? Well, I think that there's really just one word uh, that I want to get out there. Maybe two. Actually, one is uh, one is audit and one is evidence. She spoke about her desire to develop Starvoke. Uh, to be able to better uh, audit uh, the election and really to run evidence-based elections. And I think this is just such a key concept uh, for the decade that we're in now. Um, the days of an election official standing up to the podium, giving the results and trust me, everything was fine are long gone now. And she's been attuned to that problem for years. So her desire to be able to provide evidence of election results is really, really critical, uh, not just for, for public confidence, but really for the health, uh, the health of our democracy. Yeah, and the health of individuals. You know, I want to come back to, to, to Ginny and Cameron in succession real quickly, because there's one thing here they think it needs to be emphasized. This concept of decompression, this concept of I'm out of this, I need some time to, you said, you, Cameron, you mentioned health. And Jenny, you know, you just, you know, you'd finished up a five-year run there. What's that like? What's that feeling like when you don't have to be up at 4 a.m. the next morning to get right back at it again? What, what's the decompression process from all of this? I go home and cry because nobody needs me anymore. That's really, that's how I react to that. I'm like an Akita. It's like the minute, the minute the children are grown and I don't need to look after them is like I lose my purpose and then I just sort of lay down in a depressed, depressed lump. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Oh, Tina, that's, uh, that's, that's rather concerning. <laughs> but I will say, immediately for me, I started sleeping more. I, both times I left elections jobs, I went from four or five hours average sleep to seven or eight hours average sleep and felt so much better that I could do that. The stress levels are so high and you do not realize how high they are while you're there. You know you've got some stress, but it's getting worse. Mm, indeed. I just want to reflect on what a run that she's had and, and the stories only got into a fraction of the stories. I do really admire her thought leadership on Starvote because, of course, Starvote's very consistent and very close to our work at the Trust the Vote Project on ElectOS. We share a lot of the DNA. And so the really good news is, is that going forward, I think ultimately Dana in some capacity will get to witness some of her vision come true. One of the things that struck me about her comments, Cameron, was this you know, issue of expectations, you know, people expecting and demanding capabilities that just aren't available yet and and how you get through that. Did you did you pick that up too? Oh, absolutely. In fact, it reminded me of a situation very similarly when I was first coming into elections because there was an expectation by the uh, disability community that they wanted to be able to vote privately and independently. And independent was a piece of that that was very important to them. This was after the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act and some expectation that this ought to be coming along. And there's no question that there was this expectation that we should be able to start using equipment that didn't exist. Mm. And there was even a congressional bill mandating use if it had passed that would have required people to be using equipment that would take at least three years to develop. 
it was an important push that the bill be introduced because I think it got the attention of the elections community. But it was a huge frustration among election officials because if you're going to have elections with integrity as well, you've got to have a process for certifying the election equipment. And there was this expectation that could not be met because the resources are never put into elections for the innovations that really would make it more what voter would like to see. Yeah, the consummate customer experience and customer service challenge of trying to manage expectations against reality. Thanks for that. John, you had a quick comment about this, I'll bet. Sure, uh, because the, the challenge there is not simply to meet expectations about um, accessibility, but to do so without, as an unintended side effect, giving up some other essential quality of uh, election technology. And the first try really, well, you know, messed up. The first try was uh, paperless voting machines where there was no real way to determine if the um, output of those voting machines really recorded the voters' intent very well. That's right. Um, so we've come a long way since then, and Dana's advocacy for that, uh, including in uh, her Starboat effort, uh, as well as the parallel efforts uh, that we've done in Electos, you know, that's, that's critically important. I mean, you don't have to have that trade-off. One more point I think is important to acknowledge here, and that is that always the fights in elections typically are over the issue of access versus integrity. And the problem is this assumption that you only can use one or the other when you're trying to make changes, but very often there are ways to do both, but you can't do them fast. Um, What was the comment people have made before? You can do things fast cheaply or well. You can do two of the three, but not all three that's, at the same time. That's right. That's, that's better right. cheap. Pick two. Yep. Our engineering mantra. Yes. You have you can have a good, fast, or cheap. Choose two. You know, there's one thing that I know is really a sensitive issue for Dana. And I know it's a sensitive issue for you too, Jenya. And I think I probably fall in the middle, but let's uncloak the elephant in the room, right? And And that is this recent debate about criminal liability for malfeasance and misconduct of elections professionals. On the one hand, you have those that say, are you kidding me? These people are the the first responders of democracy. They're in the trenches on the front lines. You're going to now say every step they take, every move they make, we're watching them. And the other side says, absolutely, because they're taking steps that are really putting our democracy at risk. Dana comes down on the side of no criminal liability. And I know you have a different view of that. I think for the most part, a mistake is a mistake. But there are also situations where an election official clearly breaks the law in the capacity of their office. And there does need to be a way to establish some form of disciplinary action for that election official. Um, Mesa County, Colorado might be a particular hot button subject there. The vast majority of election officials do their job and they do it incredibly well and they should not have to worry about criminal penalties for the mistakes or for the actions of a poll worker who either didn't do their job or was trying to sabotage something. But it's not always the poll worker's fault. And sometimes we need to establish some form of accountability. It's just, is there a way to do that that is not ultimately perceived as adversarial for election officials and doesn't scare people off from joining the profession because we sorely need more people? Yeah, you see, I have some problems with this because I, I get what you're saying, Jenya, but you know, on on the other hand, it's like this this it's this really aggravating phrase, forensic analysis or forensic audit. You know and I know 
that's not a thing, right? Because the word forensic implies or presumes that there is something criminal to uncover. I mean, at the moment that you tell people that you're desperately trying to recruit into this position that you could be exposed to criminal liability if somebody thinks you went off the rails, show me who's going to sign up for that job. To be fair, but if your ambition is to go into public service, you would want to hope that the people that you're serving have a set of standards that they expect you to adhere to. Otherwise, why go into the altruistic but extremely low-paying field of public service? Yeah, fair, fair. And you know, it's going to be interesting because in the next segment, um, Dana's going to talk about this whole thing that went down with the Attorney General, and it hit really home for her. It'll be interesting. I think this is going to be a continued hot topic because we know there's legislative initiatives around the country that suggest that maybe there needs to be um, liability imposed. As long as I think we put together clear standards. But oh, by the way, if we're going to do that, then you know your mention of Sarah and other things, we need to start treating the professionals with the respect and the compensation, <laughs> frankly, that they deserve to take on that role. Our democracy needs it too much. I couldn't agree with you more, Greg. I want everybody to remember that we at the Trust the Vote Project are working to make election technology more verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent. We call that the VAST mandate, as an election official many, many years ago taught us. Uh, how do you know if you have a trustworthy election? That's it, if you can do those four things. And we're doing it by building open source voting technology. We call it the People's Voting System. If you'd like to support our work, please join the Trust the Vote Project at trustthevote.org uh, and click the Join button at the top. Annual membership is just $25. However, if you contribute at least $5 per month, we're going to also give you insider access to extended episode conversations where we'll dive into these topics even deeper than here. Uh, Zoominars to meet the members of the team to discuss their work, some limited edition gear, I'm told, to support the project and Dead Men Don't Vote podcast and lots of other cool stuff. If you'd like to ask us an elections-related question or otherwise be in touch, please follow us on Twitter at Dead Men Don't Vote or Trust the Vote or on Facebook at Dead Men Don't Vote or, you know, just email us at inquiry at osetinstitute.org. Finally, please take a moment to write a short review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts so that more people hear our message about how we can improve our elections. Thank you for listening to Dead Men Don't Vote. Please remember, it's your civic duty and civil right to participate in elections. Let's all be pro-democracy by prioritizing country over party and supporting free and fair elections in your community and across America. So check back in about a week for the second half of my conversation with Dana Debovar. Until next time, make sure you're properly registered and ready to vote because our democracy depends on you. You.